So this morning we're going to begin a new series having finished uh, John's Gospel last week. Uh, we're going to commence a new series on, um, we're calling the Law of God, or a study of the Ten Commandments in the Christian's uh, life. And last week I had given you an assignment, I normally don't do this, but I'd given you an assignment to read Ecclesiastes, all uh, the entire book of Ecclesiastes. Um, I, I won't ask, I won't ask, but hopefully many of you had uh, done that assignment and decided to read through Ecclesiastes. Hopefully you did, hopefully you um, read from beginning to end in one sitting, if it was possible, um, you had time to do that. And there's a, the re a reason why I had you do that is because the ending of that passage uh, relates to where we are in our catechism question, and I thought this would be a good opportunity to do a series that goes along with that. The theme, if you read Ecclesiastes, you read the entire book, you would notice the theme, or at least the, the, the main driving thing that he's seeking to do in this book is explore the question, what is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of life? And his thesis at the beginning, and you probably saw this recurring frame, refrain all the way through it, he uses the term vanity or meaningless, depending on your translation, meaninglessness. Vanity of vani vanity, meaningless of meaninglessness, or, uh, or empty, or you know, various terms like that. That was his thesis. So I'll be putting the two together. He's exploring the issue of the meaning of life, and his conclusion is vanity of vanities and meaningless. Uh, Janet was listening to the recording of it uh, this week on her walk, on one of her morning walks. She listened through the whole thing, and she came back in, and she, uh, she goes, okay, I'm, I'm listening to Ecclesiastes, and I'm through chapter 9. And she goes, and I got some conclusions. And so I'm really intrigued to hear what Janet's conclusions are. She goes, he wrote it in Michigan in mid-January. <laughs> And she goes, and he was depressed. <laughs> so seasonal affective disorder in the Bible right there. Um, but that really is the main theme as you caught it. You go vanity of vanities. And, and just kind of let me think through this word here, vanity. It's the word for mist or vapor or uh, something that disappears. It lacks substance. It just kind of vanishes. It's there for a moment that it's gone. You don't even notice where it is. And the author goes through all of this and then... Um, if we could kind of do a little bit of a survey, we won't go through the entire thing, but if I could kind of do a little bit of a survey, it's fairly uh, negative, um, sad, depressing, especially in the earlier chapters, and then he intersperses it with moments of, uh, of wisdom in there. And so let me just kind of give a, a couple of examples, just to survey the entire book before we get to the end, the real conclusion that he lands on. Notice he begins, verse 2, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanities. And by the way, when it says the preacher there, it's the, the Hebrew word there is like um, the leader of the assembly. It's related to the word for assembly. So it's the leader of the assembly. So they use this, the word as preacher here. And then uh, elsewhere, you could see a little bit later, uh, it speaks that the, the preacher was the son of David and that he was king over Jerusalem. In verse 12, it says, and I have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. This is why a lot of people attribute this to Solomon. It doesn't use his name here, but very, it's reasonable to conclude that this, this is the words of Solomon, uh, especially granted the wisdom that, that uh, was uh, given to Solomon by God. Uh, this makes sense, and as well with many of the Proverbs 
the book of Proverbs that read very similar to this. So he concludes, vanity of vanity, all is vanity, all is a vapor, all is meaningless, all is, uh, is empty, all is weightless. It's, it's all of it. He's put his entire mind to figuring out what really is the meaning of life. And he says, it's all of this. It's just a striving after the wind. So what, what does that mean in terms of the intellect, the acquisition of knowledge? Notice verse 15 and uh, 16, verse 16. I have said in my heart, I have acquired great, great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. This is chapter one. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. He commits his entire life to the intellectual pursuits or academic pursuits and wisdom. And he goes, and, and in a lot of ways, in many ways, it's, it's a vanity. What about fleshly pleasure then? You're not going to exercise the mind. You're going to then now satisfy the desires of the body. Chapter 2. And I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was a vanity. So acquisition of wisdom and knowledge, vanity. Pursuing fleshly pleasures, the pleasures of the body, vanity. What about career, occupational advancement and achievement, building culture and civilizations? Notice chapter 2, verse 4. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which uh, to water the forests of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been uh, before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, it did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expanded, expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing gained under the sun. He continues, skip down there to verses uh, 17 and 18 and 19 of chapter 2. Think about this. He's pursued intellectual, the intellectual, the life of the mind. He, he pursued the life of the, the flesh and the body. He pursued um, the acquisition of material things, pursuing his, his career advancement. And he says, so I hated my life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is a vanity. So you could get this, you could see this theme throughout here. If you skip to chapter 4, at the end of chapter 4, uh, starting verse 7. He talks about 
the vanity of accumulating his, his wealth. And greed and covetousness. Notice chapter 5, verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is a vanity. Skip to chapter 7, and you see some other things that he notices that are vain. Verse 15. In my vain life I have seen everything. There's a, a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life with evil doing. Have you ever noticed this? You ever notice why do why do the seemingly good people have their lives cut short and seemingly wicked people who spend a lifetime of doing wickedness live to a very old age? He says this in his vain life he's noticed this. There was a wicked man who pro prolongs his life in his evil doing. And then notice verse 16. Be not overly righteous and do not make for yourself, do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Or verse 17. Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It's important to recognize here. Uh, one, of, one of the very few uh, recognized um, uh, figures of speech or uh, genres of, of writing that we don't often keep in mind when we're interpreting the scripture, and that is sarcasm. This is sarcasm right here, right? He's, he's not saying, I mean, really, is the Bible telling you, you could be righteous, but yeah, don't, don't overdo it. And is he saying, he goes, yeah, but don't, you could do a little bit of wickedness, but don't be overly wicked. No, this is sarcasm here. He's saying based on the fact of what he just said in verse 15, that there does not appear to be a causation between righteous living and long life. And he, so he's saying, being sarcastic here with that in mind. He goes, well, then don't be overly righteous because then what's the point? Or don't be overly wicked because what's the point? You've got to re recognize that as sarcasm. But then notice what he says, verse 18. It is good that you should take hold of this and from, and from that withhold not your hand for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. I could go on and on, but you get the theme. There's several, several uh, themes here that are all brought together that he explores. And his conclusion is that in the end of the matter, it's, it seems like it's just all vanity. That life is... Just, a, you know, a vapor and it just goes away. And so what's the point? Now, interspersed here is several bits of, of wisdom. And so, you know, going back to chapter 2, verse 24, he concludes with some, you know, bits of wisdom and, you know, talking about pursuing fleshly things and his, you know, academic life and his uh, occupational life. And he says, verse 24, there's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from a hand of from the hand of God. For apart from him who can eat and who can have an enjoyment. So it's not entirely pessimistic. He has positive things he 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 places in here. As well, chapter 3, verse 12. I perceive that there's nothing better than for them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. And also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure. In all his toil, this is God's gift to them. Going back to verse 24, you know, he even mentions this as toil and labor as, as being a gift from God's hand. He says to find enjoyment in his, in his toil. Um, 
It's often, it's often said when it comes to your occupation, especially with young people, and um, to, have you ever heard this saying? Um, uh, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life, right? Uh, have you ever never heard this? Do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life, right? That's, you know, it's great, great advice if you could, if you could find it. But there's a lot of jobs that would not get done because there's people don't, don't love them. Um, that's not really biblical wisdom. The biblical wisdom is you're going to have toil and the Lord's going to lead you to certain occupations and, and careers and things that you're going to do. The instruction is that, um, do what you en enjoy and toil and labor and that. It's find enjoyment in what you do. Find enjoyment in your work. He also gives some uh, positive words to say, chapter 4, about the blessing of friendship. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they, if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Here he gives us this wisdom of, of so overused word community, but the importance of community, of fellowship. I like the, the term that Paul has used to describe this as having a tribe. Or chapter 5, the wisdom on being content with what God gives. Verse 18 of chapter 5. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all your toil. Right? You're supposed to find enjoyment in the toil. Don't find the toil that you enjoy. Verse 19. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and the power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is a gift from God. Another bit of wisdom, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Consider the work of God, who can make straight what he has made crooked. In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. The bit of wisdom here is to, uh, in the midst of a life that seems uh, vain and empty and meaningless like a mist, remember God's providence and his sovereignty. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? The day of prosperity and the day of adversity, God made one and the other. It would be a fascinating study to do the entire book of um, Ecclesiastes this morning. I'm, I'm not going to do that, but I want to get to the main, uh, the main conclusion that he comes to at the end. Again, dozens of times he repeats vanity of vanity as he explores all of these various aspects of of life and he concludes that it just seems vain and empty and that it's passing away. Remember, that's his thesis. But notice his conclusion that we saw in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 12. Notice his conclusion here. He says, the end of the matter. This is, I've done all of it. He says, all has been heard. And he comes to this conclusion. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this 
is the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep his commandments. As a matter of fact, it's, it, the emphasis here is on God and on his commandments. Normally, um, the, in the Hebrew, the verb starts the sentence and then everything kind of falls from there. Here, uh, for emphasis, the, um, the direct objects, very strange, the direct objects are pushed to the very front of both of these, uh, these clauses here. So if I could kind of do it literally, it's God, fear you must. His commandments, keep, you must. That's his conclusion. So in a sense, the life is really probably not as vain as, as he thinks, as he, as he leads on throughout the entire thing. At the end, he says, you have to recognize God and to fear and do what he says. And he says, and this is the whole duty of man. And the way it's written there, it can be ambiguous in lots of different ways. This is the, the whole duty of a man or the whole duty of all mankind or this is the duty of uh, the whole duty of mankind. There's lots of different ways to understand it. I just kind of say it's a grab bag of all of it. This is the whole duty, the whole duty of every individual person and the whole duty of every single person. That's their responsibility. And then he gives the reason why. And again, doesn't seem like all is vanity when you think of verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. I love his conclusion. Do you ever like just catch the end of this and you're reading all of Ecclesiastes and it's all meaningless. It's all depressing. He's suffering from seasonal affective disorder and nothing means anything. And then all of a sudden he goes, no, at the end of the matter, fear God and keep his commandments. This is the duty of man. And this is what we saw in our uh, catechism questions today. And so this is what we're going to explore. His commandments. His commandments. And this raises a whole host of questions. Like, well, which commands? All of the Old Testament law? Just parts of the Old Testament law? If only parts, which parts? And why some parts as opposed to other parts? Isn't the Old Testament law not applicable at all to Christians? Haven't they all expired? Are all of them have been abrogated? Does following God's command save us? I mean, these are the questions that we should be thinking here. What if we can't fulfill them? Is the, is the law irrelevant? If so, then what is the Christian's duty? And where, what's the standard for our duty? These and many questions, many other questions, are the questions that we're going to explore in this study on the Ten Commandments. And so a little disclaimer for today. Today is not going to be like preachy, like a sermon today. It's going to be a little bit more of a, a teaching, uh, a teaching series. Uh, and I didn't get to set out, but I thought we would do the dry erase board. But we may, we may bring that in for next week. So I want to begin this series by establishing uh, some of the concepts and terms today. Okay, so again, this is not a sermon. It's not going to have three or four points nicely alliterated like I try to do sometime, you know, and then wrap it up at the end. This is going to be a teaching, and I really want to convey a couple of very important terms and very important concepts uh, to get it sorted out. So is, is that okay with everyone? 
Is that okay with most of you? Uh, okay. So let's go back to our catechism question. Uh, uh, catechism question verse 34. Excuse me, 44. What is the duty which God requireth of man? So as we've been going through the catechism questions this year, starting in September, we went through 43. Question 1 through question 43 was basically covering major Christian doctrine. Okay, it was basically covering the theology. Beginning in question 44, we now talk, the questions are related to like, well, how should a Christian live? And so it begins with this one, going to the very question that, it, that Ecclesiastes leaves us at the end there. What is the duty which God requireth of man? And the answer is the duty which God requireth of man is obedience to his revealed will. Okay, now a couple of verses that are key there. Notice Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. God has requirements for all of humankind. They have obligations on them, and they are to hear and to listen and to obey what God commands. Or 1 Samuel 15, 22. And Samuel, this is Samuel speaking to Saul. He's confronting Saul on his, uh, his sin. And he says, has the, Lord, uh, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Those are the scripture references that go to this question. What is the duty that God fundamentally requires of, of mankind, and that is obedience to his will. This is the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. And now I want to look at question uh, 45. Well, actually, before we do that, notice his will. And my, going back to our question uh, 34 or 44 there, it says obedience to his revealed will. It might be helpful at this point to, um, to talk about the will of God, that there really is two different aspects or two different parts to God's will, what God wills for his creatures to do. And it's important to kind of keep in distinction um, what's called God's secret will and his revealed will. His secret will and his revealed will. Or sometimes the older terms for it are his decretive will, decretive will. It's like I turned German all of a sudden. Decretive will and his preceptive will. Like, so his decree, there's his decree, the, what he wills to do, and that's secret to us, but then also what the precepts he gives us, and that's what's revealed to us. Like the writer of Deuteronomy, chapter uh, 29, 29. Moses says, The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to us. And to our children forever, that we may do the whole words of this law. Like to illustrate this, kind of like from our perspective on the moon. Um, the moon, there's a very fascinating feature about the moon. It's what's called synchronous rotation. Do you know what that means, right? So whenever you've looked, your entire lifetime, whenever you've looked up at the moon, if you were able to see it at night, you're seeing the same half of the moon the entire time. 
Nobody on earth has ever seen the, the other side of the moon. It's the term the dark side of the moon because its rotation on its axis is identical with its orbit around the earth. Okay, so we really only see one side. This is a great illustration about the will of God. God has one will, but from uh, our perspective, we only see one side. Only one side of it is revealed to us. One is, one is seen by us. The other side is unseen. And nevertheless, it's one moon. So too is God's will like that. There's parts to God's will that we don't have access to. But what we do have access to, he has revealed it to us. So that's the will of God. What is the duty which God requires of man is obedience to his revealed will. And then question 45 is, what did God at first reveal to man for the rule for his obedience? Now think of rule here as a measuring stick or a standard that measures our conduct. God's revealed will to uh, humans to govern our conduct is, in the answer, the rule which God revealed to man for his obedience was the moral law. So that's the first thing. If you're taking notes, if there's one key term I want to give you today, the moral law. It's the will of God for our human behavior and conduct. Now, in the Old Testament, there's lots of different terms Related to God's laws, um, there's rules or judgments, just judgments. If you remember way back when we did the series in the Psalms and I did Psalm 119, and we saw that, uh, that every single stanza has all eight of the main words for God's laws or precepts instructions. So let me just kind of recap a little bit. There's rules or righteous judgments. It's kind of the same. Some could be translated either way. That's mishpat. There's commandments, which is mitzvah. There are statutes, which is hok or hukha. There's precepts. The Hebrew words pikudim. There's testimonies, edut. But probably the most important is Torah. You've probably heard this before. Torah, that's the word we would translate as law or teaching. And this is the rule, the will of God for human behavior and conduct. We usually just term it as God's law. That's how we use, this, we use this word even today. What's the standard that is acceptable for behavior and what's off limits? The theologian Thomas Aquinas wrote a great deal about, uh, about this, and he says that Law is a rule and measure of acts whereby man is induced to act or is restrained from acting. It, because it binds one to act. He kind of connects it to the, to the Latin word to, to bind. So what is God's will for us? We call us the moral law. Now, where did this moral law come from? From creation. It's foundational to the creator-creature relationship. The very creation of man, who was made in God's image, inherently includes within it a duty or an obligation. The creature is obligated to obey its creator. This is not something that God added after he's created man and then said, oh, he should probably obey me. It's fundamental to the creator-creature relationship. Being made in God's image, man has an obligation 
as before his face to live, uh, to live a certain way. And that God has given that to him as part of his creation. So it leads us to the question, how did Adam come to the knowledge of this moral law? How did Adam come to it? How did he acquire it? Well, one, in two ways, really. The first, we've already seen this and hinted at. It is implanted in him. It's innate. Of course, Adam wasn't born. Um, he was created. But for all of us, God's moral law, the standard of right and wrong, to obey God and to listen to his voice and follow him, is innately implanted in all persons. And so that leads us to the second uh, term. Well, let me kind of give the scripture passage that, that hints at this. You could see it elsewhere, but this is one of the main passages here. The Apostle Paul has just written about the pagans in chapter 1 who did, uh, who were God's wrath and judgment was going to be on them for suppressing the truth about God, what God has revealed to them, and they suppress the truth and continue to act in unrighteousness. And then he turns to uh, talk up to the Jews who have the law, and, and is challenging them on why they don't follow it. And in the middle of that argument, he says these words. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law, okay, right? He's saying they didn't have them out Sinai. They didn't have the Ten Commandments come to them on tablets of stone. The Gentiles didn't have that. However, it says, by nature, do what the law requires. By nature. It's inherent in them. He says, when they do that, then they, they really are becoming a law to themselves. Because we'd say the, the moral law is there. Even though they do not have the law. Verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. So the Jews might have been given the Ten Commandments, and they might have been given the moral law, and then a whole bunch of other things. But the Apostle Paul is saying, and actually, not only Jews, did you have the law, it's written on your hearts. As a matter of fact, it's written on everyone's heart. And so the key term for this becomes natural law. Natural law, which is the moral law written on human hearts. Moral law written on human hearts. So even the Gentiles who did not receive the Ten Commandments, like Israel did, still have that implanted knowledge of right and wrong. They're, they know the requirement for obedience to God. It's written on their hearts and written on their consciences. Now you'd ask, well, why don't they? Well, that's where sin and rebellion come in. They're suppressing the truth about who God is. They're suppressing his, the, the truth about right and wrong because they want to rebel against him following, following their ancestor, Adam. I like what we saw and when we were in reading through Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 12, it says, also he, that is God, God has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. Human beings have this built-in capacity for the eternal things because we were made in God's image. He's made us to that. Things that transcend what we can perceive in the natural world alone. And I like Augustine's famous prayer at the beginning of his confessions where he says, Thou, God, has made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless till they rest in thee. 
So this natural law comes from God himself. So how did Adam acquire this, the knowledge of God's will for his life, this moral law? Well, two ways. One, it was implanted in him. And so we're calling that the moral law implanted, written on his heart. That's the natural law. And the second way he received it was specific commands added to it. Adam knew by nature to obey, but he was also given a specific command from God to obey. It's given several commands. One of them was to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. Genesis chapter 1. But then in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, it says, And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of any tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it you shall surely die. So God had given and written the moral law in his heart, but he'd given him a specific command. In addition to what he already knew as the general understanding that he needed to obey his creator, but God had given him a specific instruction. And this is a very important distinction, one we're going to return to uh, later in this series as we seek to answer some of the questions I laid out there at the beginning, to understand the difference between natural law and what we're calling here positive law. Now, positive here doesn't mean like positive as in good and negative as bad. Like, you know, I have a pretty positive experience of watching a movie or a negative experience of going to the doctor or something like that. Here, positive is meaning as is conveys the sense of added. It's something that is added in particular here, to the, to the moral law that is written on man's heart. So here God gives a positive command. You can eat of all the trees, you just can't eat of this one. Now this raises a question here. So we're looking at the, main, the three main key terms I want you to grasp here. Could Adam have kept that law, both the moral and the positive law? The answer is, is yes. It was in his power to do so. St. Augustine had spelled this out very, very well um, back in the 4th century, into the 4th century, into the, fifth, the beginning of the 5th century, when he talks about the, uh, the state of Adam before the fall. He, he uses this Latin expression, passe pacare, and passe non pecare. This is the Latin terms for um, meaning it was possible for him to sin. But at the same time, it was possible for him to not sin. It was possible for Adam to have heeded the command. He was just going to obey God. He was fruitful and multiplying, so he did those things. And God had given him a positive, specific command. And if Adam would have stayed away from the tree, who knows? Maybe eventually would have, but at least you have to recognize it was possible for Adam to have not sinned. That's pre-fall. Post-fall, is that possible any longer? No. Augustine says, it's non passe non picari. It's not possible not to, not to sin. That's no longer a possibility for us. Until we until we achieve glorification after salvation through Jesus Christ, then it's possible. But it was possible for Adam to have done this. So this leads us to uh, and then the last term. Do I have this last term here? Yes. 
Uh, last term for today, and that is the covenant of works. How many remember we talked about this several weeks ago in the John series, especially John chapter 17? Talked about this covenant that God made with Adam in the garden. And there were four parts to a covenant. Remember, there's the parties of the covenant, then there's precepts, there's, there's instructions. You, you, this is what you can do, this is what you can't do. And there's a, a promise connected to it. You get a reward if you obey. But then there's uh, penalties or punishments connected to it if you don't. So the parties in this covenant of creation, this covenant of works, is God and Adam. The precepts are the moral law. It's written on his heart and he's given him a positive command. The, the promises are life and fellowship with God in the garden. The penalties are, well, in the day that you eat it, you're going to die. So there was a, there was a covenant of works there. It was possible for Adam to have fulfilled this, but he, of course, didn't. You also saw in Ecclesiastes, the writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, hinting at this at the very end of chapter 7, verse 29. He says, See, this alone I found, that God made man... The Hebrew there is singular, it's Adam. It's the same word we'd have, it's the same for the name for Adam, by the way. That God made man upright. But they, notice this weird, weird switch there from the singular for man upright to they in the plural, but they have sought out many schemes. God, God made humanity upright in Adam, but all humanity in Adam onward had sought out schemes. This is a way of disobeying and rebelling against their creator. So let me summarize this. Now, I know that you're wondering where this is going. This is, a, again, let me just remind you, this is kind of a foundational concepts that we need to get when we get to understanding uh, the, the Ten Commandments. But let me summarize here thus far. In helping us to understand the law of God. And we could do it this way. That God gave to Adam a law of universal obedience. Okay? This is the moral law. Written in his heart. This is a natural law. And a particular precept. That's the positive law. Of not eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil by which he bound him and all his posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience. Promised life upon fulfilling and threatened death upon the breach of it and endued him with the power and ability to keep it. So where is this law summarily comprehended? That was question 46. Well, it's... Where do we get this summary of this law that was written on our hearts? Well, the summary of it in the answer to our catechism question is the Ten Commandments, and that's what we're going to explore a little bit more next week. But let me just, before we do that, in our closing here, let me just kind of conclude with this kind of meditation. 
can we fulfill the moral law of God? Because it would be inappropriate here for us to talk about the moral law, natural law, positive law, and, not, and have you all walk away confused about, well, what does that mean for us and for Christians? Are we, are we justified by obeying God's law? No. Because we can't. No one since Adam has been able to personally, perfectly, perpetually do the moral law. We're all guilty of breaking the moral law. As a matter of fact, we do so at various degrees, but failure even at one point, the writer of James tells us, is as if we've broken the whole thing. Well, then is the, is the issue then, well, what if we fail to obey? Do we just get up and do better? Will that be enough? Uh, no, <laughs> you can't. Since Adam's fall, no one has been able to do this. Except the second Adam. That is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only one that came not only to suffer and die for us and our sins so that we could be reconciled to God, but he lived a righteous life. It's a very important thing to keep in mind. Why did Jesus need to live this life? Why didn't, you know, if it was just a matter of sacrificing Jesus, why didn't they sacrifice him when he was a child? Because he needed to live righteously under the law for us. To fulfill it for us. So that the righteousness, the, the reward of life that Adam failed to obtain, Jesus obtains, and that as he has that, he now gives it as a gift to all who would have faith in him. But if we receive that gift from Jesus Christ, does that mean that the moral law is now irrelevant? No, remember, it's written on our hearts. It's foundational to our relationship with God because God is the standard of it. The moral law no longer condemns us for not obeying it perfectly and perpetually. But nevertheless, that law becomes a rule of life to those who are saved by Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to be exploring in the rest of this series. That the moral law does forever bind all. It does remain in effect. Not as a covenant of works. Not that we might be justified by obeying it. But as justified persons who have put faith in Jesus Christ... We've now been given by God this moral law that would guide us in our behavior and our conduct and how we ought to live. So why are we studying the Ten Commandments? Because I believe that, that here we have summarily comprehended for us the will of God for us that is useful and instructive to us as believers. Next, we're going to look at, next week, Lord willing, we're going to ask, well, why the Ten Commandments? What about the other laws of the Old Testament? And what about Jesus' great commandment? 
Did Jesus replace the ten with the, the two great commandments when he was asked, which is the greatest of all of the laws? Or what are the uses of the Ten Commandments to us today, if any? And if so, how can we rightly understand and apply them? That's what we're going to look at next week. But today, let's remember, there is a moral law that is written upon our hearts. And there was a positive law that was given to Adam, and Adam failed and rebelled against him. But we have a Savior the second Adam who came to fulfill that all perfectly for us. And through faith in him, we're forgiven and reconciled to him. But then by his spirit, he's going to enable us to follow his commands. And that's what we're going to explore together. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Our gracious heavenly father, we thank you for your word. That we thank you that despite Solomon's pessimism that all is vanity as he looked throughout all of life that he concluded with those wonderful words that all has been heard the end of the matter is God fear you must his commands keep you must and so our gracious God we ask for you to give us the willingness to to hear your words and hear your commands, to understand what your law is and know that we aren't justified by it, we're not saved by it as by a covenant of works, but that your law and our study of it might direct us more to your son Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished for us, but that it likewise will, will assist us in, how, in helping us to know how to live for him. And so we ask that you would do that in and through us as this church community explores your law. And we pray all of this in the name of your son and by the power of the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen, amen. Friends, let's stand for our closing benediction. From Ephesians chapter 1. Now may the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Peace be with you. Thank you. Thank you.